My name is Austin Helm. I'm one of the teaching and venue pastors here at EV Free. If this is your first time to EV Free, uh, we hope that you feel right at home. If this is your 500th time to EV Free, uh, we want to say welcome home. I-, I was just speaking to a family in the first service here. They said, we've been here for 45 years. I thought, I haven't even been alive for 45 years. Um, but wherever you fall on that spectrum, whether this is your first Sunday or your 500th Sunday, if you're here at EV Free, uh, we're simply a group of people that are passionate about following Jesus as disciples, connecting as family and going as missionaries. And, and the reason we, we continue to gather here on Sunday mornings is we're in a, we're in a constant um, season of reorienting our lives around Jesus. I was thinking about um, my life this past week and the reorientation that takes place. Uh, If you're the kind of person uh, that's kind of hoping for fitness goals and you want to live a long, healthy life, the odds are that you are orienting your life around the gym and the vegetable aisle at the grocery store. Uh, If you're the kind of person that's hoping to have a great retirement, uh, you probably are orienting your life around a sound budget in uh, giving, in saving, and in spending. If you're hoping to have a robust family life with your parents, with your kids, with your spouse, with your brothers, your sisters, you're probably orienting your life around the dinner table or activities that you all enjoy. You see, whatever it is in our life, whatever area we want to excel in, we oftentimes find ourselves orienting our life around that, especially with our calendar. And and the life of discipleship really is no different. Uh, throughout the centuries, the Christian church, people that have followed Jesus, have oriented their lives around the local church and spiritual disciplines to really engage in this process of following Jesus. And one of the seasons that we really orient our lives around as a church for the past 2,000 years has been the resurrection of Jesus. For thousands of years on Easter Sunday, the church has gathered to celebrate the most important day in human history, the day when Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. That day is coming up in about three or four weeks. And so we thought, man, how do we ramp up to such a day? Like, how do you really prepare your heart and prepare yourself for this day in human history that absolutely changed everything? Well, we thought what we would do is uh, we would take a look at the life of Jesus and we'd break it into four segments. One, his birth. We'll talk about that this morning. Next week, we'll talk about the life of Jesus. The week after that, we'll talk about the death, the triumphal entry of Jesus. That'll be um, together with Good Friday. And then following that will be Easter Sunday. We'll talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And so we're calling this series, Jesus, a vision for the church. Being a disciple of Jesus and following after Jesus is a vision for everybody that would give their allegiance and their faithfulness to Jesus. And one of, the, one of the unique things we find about the life of Jesus in his birth, in his teachings, in his death, and in his resurrection, it, it, it's this theme of Jesus becoming king. Whether you look at his teachings, you look at his birth, you look at his death or resurrection, it is all couched in kingly, royal language. N.T. Wright um, writes this great book called um, How God Became King. And this idea for the Jewish people wasn't a new idea. In fact, when you read the Old Testament scriptures, you find over and over again this theme that one day Yahweh was going to return to his people and reestablish his kingdom, reestablish his reign. Um, As the Old Testament writers began to unpack this idea, it became couched in the language of Messiah, that God would send an anointed one 
God would send a Messiah. God would send a king. And it would be his definitive ruler, his definitive representative for his people throughout all time. Uh, For local churches and the Christian faith for thousands of years, that definitive person, that Messiah, that anointed one, that representative God, the absolute image of God in the flesh has been Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. And so this morning we're launching into this series and today we're going to talk about his birth and we're going to look at his birth in, in two gospel accounts. There are four gospels that record the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Only two of those gospels record his birth. Uh, Matthew and Luke. And we're going to look at how both of those gospels begin to unpack the birth of Jesus as the birth of a king, the birth of a ruler, the birth of a Messiah. Uh, But before we hop in, uh, we just want to spend a moment in prayer. We think whenever we open the text, when we approach God through his word, we think his word is powerful. We think it's dynamic. We think it actually has the opportunity to send us out different than we came in. More whole, more restored, more oriented around the person of Jesus. And so we want to pray and invite the Holy Spirit to shape us and to change us and to do what only he can do. Can we pray together? Father, we are thankful. We're, we're, we're thankful for your word that you've given it to us to enjoy, to meditate on, and ultimately to be changed by. So Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place. We invite you here to do what only you can do, which is to send us out different than we came in. So Holy Spirit, we ask you this morning, would you teach us at least one new thing about your son? Would you teach us one new thing about your son that we can take into our workplace, that we can take into our schools, that we can take into our homes? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I am, uh, I am on the tail end of being sick all week. So I've got, I've got a little bit of a cough that I'm humanly kind of oppressing. So uh, if I cough once or twice, I, my deepest apologies for that. I'm going to try and get one out of the way right now. <coughs> okay. With that being said, uh, has anybody been on Ancestry.com? It, it, but just by a show of hands, it, it's, it's a genealogy. It, it, you, get to, you get to link up with people all over the world that are trying to, to trace their roots. Uh, by a different show of hands, if you have not been on Ancestry.com, how many of you have looked into your family tree? Just, just by a show of hands. And if you can keep your hands up real quick, we're going to do a little survey. How many of you are able to take your family tree back two generations? Keep them up if you did. Three generations, four generations, five generations, six generations, seven generations. How many generations? Wow, that's awesome. How about you in the back? Wow, I mean, that's incredible. If you've ever looked into your family tree, especially when it goes back hundreds of years, you find some really exciting people in your family tree, some really unique stories thinking, wow, I cannot believe I'm connected to that. And if you've done it, you've also found maybe some unsavory characters thinking, wow, I can't believe I'm connected to that, right? Like that's oftentimes how family trees work. You have the good and the bad in family trees. Uh, whenever Matthew opens up his gospel account of Jesus, when he begins to talk about Jesus becoming king, the first thing Matthew does is he gives an ancestry of Jesus. 
He gives a genealogy of Jesus, which is three sets of 14 generations, which is 42 generations of folks going back. For the writer of Matthew, he takes the beginning of Jesus back to the line of Abraham. And when you begin to read the ancestry of Jesus, you find some characters you'd be deeply proud of. You find folks like Abraham, and you find folks like David, and then you find some unsavory characters as well. The kind of people you think, wow, I can't believe they're a part of the story because the way that they live on the weekends does not represent Jesus. Like that was the idea when you looked at the genealogy of Jesus. In fact, the genealogy of Jesus is so interesting. We could probably do an eight-week series on it called Ancestry.Jesus.com. I don't know, something like that. Um, And it would be fascinating. Uh, We're not going to do that, but we're going to look at a few key moments in the genealogy of Jesus. The writer breaks it down into three 14-generational segments. And so we're going to look at those. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, we're not going to read the text, but you could mark this. This is Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 through 17. The screen says Genesis because I was sick this week, and I was thinking the beginning of the Gospels. And so I wrote down Genesis because Genesis means beginning, but it's, it's Matthew. Matthew chapter one, uh, verses one through 17. It's the genealogy of Jesus. And uh, the first thing the writer does is he mentions Abraham. Abraham was probably the seminal figure of the Old Testament. He, he was seminal because for Abraham and his family, he represented prophetically to the world the beginning of the end of the problem of evil. You see, in Genesis 1 through 3, we have this beautiful story of creation. We have a beautiful story of a garden. We have a beautiful story of a paradise. The the, the kind of life that you could only dream of. A life firing on all cylinders. A robust spiritual life. Great relationships in the family. uh, Work uh, that was rewarding. uh, Finances that were abundant. This is the kind of picture the garden painted. But because of rebellion in the garden, because of going against uh, Yahweh's orders, what you find is that a curse enters the garden. Sickness, disease, work that's really difficult and not as rewarding. Finances that are difficult. Separation between husband and wife. Spiritual separateness from Yahweh. I mean, this curse enters in, but God is not content with that. Whenever you read the Old Testament scriptures, God is always desiring to restore his earth to paradise, to put everything back in its right place. And he begins that in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1 through 3. He calls Abram. He says, Abram, I want you to leave the land that you live in. I want you to leave your extended family. I want you to leave your father's house. I want you to take your family and go to a new land. I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And when you do, Abram, I'm going to bless you. And not just bless you, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. The blessing is going to be so robust that whoever blesses you, I will bless them. And because of all this blessing going on, all of the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, oftentimes in the Western world, especially in faith circles, we, we spiritualize the word blessing simply to mean a a Zen-like quality of life, a quality of life that's so spiritual and meditative that we're able to escape the hustle and bustle of the world. But the Jewish idea of blessing was actually a very tangible blessing. It was a 3D kind of blessing. It was the kind of blessing that spiritually you were in a robust relationship with Yahweh. 
financially you experience the deep prosperity and generosity of God. In your family, you, you experienced a family that was whole and centered around the worship of Yahweh. In, in people's bodies, they experienced health and long life. This was the idea of Jewish blessing. You see, for Abraham, his life was designed to be a prophetic sign to the world that God was putting everything back in its right place. But it wasn't all going to happen at once. It was going to happen through the blessing of Abram and then to his family, and then to his extended family, and then to the nation of Israel, and then Israel ultimately to the nations. In fact, the, the, the plan is going according to plan. Uh, Israel ends up in this golden era of a monarchy. Uh, they, they end up with a kingdom. They find themselves in the land that was promised to Abraham, and they find themselves with the best king of all time. King David. Uh, King David actually represents the golden era of Israel as a nation. It's when the worship of Yahweh was robust. They weren't involved in any political alliances that would corrupt their faithfulness to Yahweh. Uh, Society as a whole was firing on all cylinders. They were experiencing abundance and generosity. It's just, it was one of those golden eras for Israel. In fact, 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 1 talks about King David. It says, under the rule of King David, all of the enemies of Israel were put to rest. It says they had rest on every side. Have you ever been in a season of life like that? Where it felt like you had rest on every side. Your health was good. Your finances were good. Your family was good. Your workplace was good. If you're like me, you've experienced it, but it didn't last very long. (laughs) Because there seems to always be unrest in our lives at some period. But during this golden era, it was incredible. Unfortunately, the, the, the shine of the golden era begins to wane. Israel begins to rebel against Yahweh. They continue to worship Yahweh, but they, they incorporate the worship of foreign gods and foreign idols and foreign rulers. They begin to make alliances with countries they're not destined to make alliances with. The, the actual social fabric of Israel begins to fall apart. And so this is the, this is the first set of uh, 14 generations from Abraham to David. And keep in mind, this is the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, the next set of generations is from David to Babylon. In fact, because of the waning of Israel and their faithfulness to Yahweh, what ends up happening is the rulers, the leadership, the elite, um, the business folks of Israel, they get sent into exile to Babylon. Excuse me. <coughs> to Babylon. And if you would have been sent into exile, it was your worst nightmare. It's like coming back from a vacation in the Bahamas and back to your workplace. It's a nightmare, right? Like, like who here has ever been on vacation? A, cu- a couple of us have been on vacation. Just imagine what your first day or two back from vacation were like. You thought, why am I back here? I just want to go back to vacation. It's tough for Californians to really embrace that because we kind of live in vacation central. But if you're like me and you're from Oklahoma, you know, I, one time I got to travel to California. It was February. It was freezing in Oklahoma. It was snowing. It was sleeting. It was a miserable fireplace every night. I came to California. It was like 70 degrees in February. And then I went back to the cold in Oklahoma. I thought, why? Why am I back here, right? That's kind of what exile was. In fact, Psalm chapter 137, verse 1, it's talking about Israel in exile in Babylon. 
And the people of Israel say, man, how can we sing the songs of Israel? How can we sing the songs of Zion while we are in a foreign land, far from the place that felt like God's goodness and God's abundance? This is kind of the trajectory of Israel. They, they start out as a small clan under Abraham being blessed. They, they grow into a nation that's blessed, but then because of their waywardness, they end up in exile. But uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, it gives this promise. It gives this promise that Yahweh will never abandon Israel. In fact, as much as David was their best king to date, there was a promise that a new king would come. A king that would actually be better than David. And when that king came, all of the nations would rally around this king. And so when Israel, when they are in exile in Babylon, they hold on to that promise that Yahweh isn't done with us yet. He's going to send us another king. And so the author of Matthew, who's writing this genealogy, he says the next set of 14 generations is from exile to Jesus. Uh, In other words, what Matthew is going to begin to unpack following this is that Israel is coming out of exile. They've already left Babylon. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28 is a prophecy about Israel coming out of Babylon. It says, I'm going to raise up a ruler. His name will be Cyrus. And Cyrus will send Israel out of Babylon back to their hometown and they're going to rebuild the city. They're going to rebuild the temple. They're going to dwell once again in the land. And so it's true. Cyrus comes in. He delivers Israel from Babylon. And the Israelites end up back in the land, but they're still in a quasi kind of exile. Uh, They're still under Roman rule. The second temple they built wasn't as glorious as the first temple that was destroyed. And so Israel is still kind of in this sense of Yahweh isn't done with us yet. Yahweh still has more work to do. Yahweh still has more deliverance, more redemption, and more saving to do. And for Matthew, God is going to bring this to fulfillment in the person of Jesus. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, 16 and 17 says, and this is how the birth of the Messiah came to be. Messiah simply means anointed one. It means king. And then it tells a story unlike you would ever expect. Um, If I were writing a story about (coughs) a king, an ancestry, if you will, I, I would want to write a story that was neat and tidy. I would want my king to be born into a royalty that already knew they were royalty. I would want the family to be completely together and at peace. I'd want the finances to be abundant. I would want that baby to be born in a golden crib. I would want every I dotted and every T crossed. But what we find is that Jesus is born into the Davidic line. He's born into the royal line, but the situation he's born into is super interesting. If we read Matthew Chapter 1, beginning verses 18 to 24. uh, One of the first things we find is that Mary, Mary's pledged to be married to Joseph. They're engaged. They have the ring on. They've done their engagement photos. They've put it on Facebook. Everybody knows that Mary and Joseph are to be married. And when you were being raised in Jewish society, you weren't to take place in intercourse until after you were married. That was to seal the deal. And so one night Mary comes and knocks on Joseph's door. He says, Joseph, I have some news for you. He says, let's hear it. I love news. 
She says, this is, you, but you got to hear me out. Like this, it's not going to be what you expect. He says, no, Mary, I trust you. We're engaged. What's going on? Mary says, I'm pregnant. Now, if you're Joseph, you know that the only way, there's, well, there's, there's only one way to get pregnant. And Joseph knows it wasn't him. And so you can imagine Joseph just being like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to get involved in this. This is super shameful. In fact, the text says that Joseph is so righteous. He's such a person of the law that he's going to go ahead and divorce Mary. He's going to call off the engagement before they're even married. Now, oftentimes to um, protect the reputation of a man, they might do it in public. Uh, oftentimes when women would be caught in adultery or in scandalous acts, they were brought before the entire town and they were shamed publicly. Uh, but, but Joseph still cares for Mary. So I'm going to divorce her, but I'm going to do it quietly. And I'm going to do it privately. And so you can imagine even at the beginning, the tension between Joseph and Mary. And Mary says, no, 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 but Joseph, it's not like that. This is, this is of God. The Holy Spirit has done this in me. And Joseph says, I'm also going to call the psychiatrist uh, because we need to take you in. But what ends up happening is the, the, the two part for the night and Joseph is asleep and it says an angel visits Joseph. And the first thing the angel says to Joseph is, Joseph, don't be afraid. What Mary says is true. The thing that is happening in her womb, it's of God. It's a new thing that Yahweh is doing for his people. So you, you need to take Mary to be your wife. And then there's this, this verse that's so fascinating. This is Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. The angel says, Mary's going to give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Now we have up here Jesus and Joshua, because for a lot of you in your, your Bibles, you have a footnote next to Jesus. And at the bottom of the footnote, it says that Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. Joshua means the God that saves. He says, you're, you're to call your son Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Keep in mind, it was precisely the sins of Israel that sent them from their golden era under David to exile in Babylon. And so here they are still in this quasi-exile because of their sin, but the angel is saying their exile is coming to an end. They're going to be restored. They're going to be redeemed. And it's going to be through Jesus, the God who saves. But he's not just going to save. Watch this. The text says this virgin, she'll conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Uh, this baby that's going to come isn't just going to save. He's going to be with his people in such a unique way. The gospel of John chapter one says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, moved into our homes, became our neighbor, saw him working as a carpenter, saw him in the marketplace, saw him in school. There, there's something about Yahweh becoming flesh, becoming incarnate and dwelling among his people that is so unique to the people of God. So he says, not only is Jesus going to save his people, return them from exile, but Jesus is going to be with his people. And then this, this language of kingship begins to unfold uh, we notice here Jesus and Herod. At the time Jesus is born, uh, Herod is known as the king of the Jews. He's been put in place 
by Caesar, but Herod isn't Jewish. And Herod doesn't care much for the Jewish people. When the Jewish people would think about a real king of the Jews, it was the kind of person that would be like David. But not just like David, but better than David. And so in Matthew chapter 2, what we have is this caravan of wise men, probably far more than three. Uh, Scholars would say these wise men probably come from the area of Arabia. They may even be Jewish. And they come before Herod and they say the most scandalous thing to Herod. Look at what they say. That they approach Herod and they ask him, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? And if you're Herod, this is a direct slap in the face. This is a direct insult. Herod say, no, I'm the king of the Jews. But these wise men say, no, Herod, you're an imposter. Herod, you're a fraud. Herod, your time is up. God is becoming king once again, and his Messiah, his representative, has now been born. And then watch what the wise men do. They say, we saw his star when it arose, and we've come to worship him. For these wise men, the fact that God was becoming king in Jesus meant a complete reorientation of their worship, a complete reorientation of their piety, a complete reorientation of the way that they would live. And so the first thing we see is that Matthew, he's giving Jesus kingly language. The minute Jesus is born, he is the king of the Jews in the mind of these wise men. Uh, the same thing happens in the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, you have these shepherds. Uh, these shepherds would have been the very bottom of the ladder. They were the social outcasts. Uh, they were ceremonially unclean. Nobody really wanted to be around them. But it's out in the fields, probably in a cave, that Mary gives birth to Jesus. And Joseph is with her. And they're surrounded by, by animals in this cave. And these shepherds are out tending to the flocks. And it says that a multitude of angels appears. And when this multitude of angels appears, one of the angels speaks up. And he says this about Jesus. This is Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. He says, today in the town of David, remember there's a king coming that will be better than David. It says, a savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. Now, this word Messiah, this is Jewish. It wouldn't have been new for the shepherds to hear. It means anointed one. It means the king that would come definitively as God's representative to put everything right. But then he uses these two words, Savior and Lord. Up here we have Jesus and Caesar. Caesar wasn't just the king of the Jews. He was the emperor of the entire Roman Empire. And in fact, uh, in Rome, when people would talk about Caesar, they would proclaim that Caesar was the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the savior of all of the world. And so here these angels show up and they say, Caesar's time is done. Caesar himself is a fraud and an imposter. A new savior of the world has been born. A new Lord has been born. And it's not Caesar and it's not in his line. It's in the line of David that traces back to Abraham and God's plan of salvation for the entire world through Yahweh. This person is baby Jesus. And so one of the things that we find in both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke is that from the minute Jesus is born, 
<coughs> he's proclaimed king. From the minute Jesus is born, the, the wise men find their way to Jesus and they say, we have come to worship him. We have to reorient our lives around the reality that God has become king in Jesus. The same thing happens to the shepherds. The shepherds are a far cry from the wise men. They aren't wealthy. They aren't successful. They're poor, probably in poverty, the, the bottom of the ladder. And yet they come and they reorient their lives around this new King Jesus. Why? Because Jesus as King is going to begin to set up colonies of heaven. In fact, that's what Paul says. When Paul talks about the local church, Paul says the local church has become a colony of heaven. And this is what that means. It means simply that when the Roman Empire would go into foreign countries, they would begin to colonize these countries. And when they would colonize, it was a way to infuse the DNA of Rome into these new societies. It was a new currency, a new way of worship a new way of living, a new way of interacting, a, a new way of reading, a new way of teaching, a new way of speaking. And what Paul says is that we aren't a colony of the Roman Empire. We aren't a colony of Persia. We aren't a colony of Babylon. We are a colony of heaven and Jesus is our king. Which means that in every area of our life, we are beginning to reorient ourselves around this new reality. We're reorienting our focus from ourselves to Jesus. We're reorienting the way that we handle our finances. We're reorienting the way that we handle worship. We're reorienting the way that we engage with our spouse, with our mom and our dad, with our sons and our daughters, our brothers and our sisters and our grandparents. The reality that Jesus is king. The reality that Yahweh has become king through Jesus for the church for thousands of years has changed everything. It, it's meant a completely new disposition and a completely new way of working in the workplace. A completely new way of treating our spouse. A completely new way of honoring our father and our mother. A completely new way of giving in generosity. You see, the reality that Jesus is king changes everything. It's one of the reasons we continue to gather in spaces like this on a Sunday morning. I would just encourage you, just look around for someone. Look at the people next to you, behind you, in front of you. I know we don't do it often, but whenever we look around and we see all these folks gathered together, one of the things that we're seeing is we're seeing a colony of heaven. We are seeing a group of people that are committed to reorienting their lives around the reality that Jesus is king. And so it changes the way that we leave this place. It changes the way we treat our boss when we show up to work tomorrow. It changes the way we treat our employees when we show up to work tomorrow. It changes the way we speak to our spouse. We treat our parents and we treat our kids. It changes the way we handle our budgets when we get our paychecks. The reality that Jesus has, is king, changes everything. And one of the things we're going to find over the course of the next four weeks is that the reality that Yahweh has become king, that God has become king through Jesus, affects the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus. As we orient our lives around this Easter season, it's a significant opportunity for us to re-engage 
with the way that we're currently living. And, I, and really challenge ourselves to be, say, Lord, I want to be part of the colony of heaven. I want to be a part of a new way of living. A new way of treating my spouse, my kids, my parents, my boss, my barista, the people at the marketplace. I, I want everything to be different. This is an amazing opportunity for us to to engage in a new way of living in a new life because of what Jesus has done for his people through the cross and his resurrection. So this morning we're beginning to stumble upon scriptures that paint Jesus as our king. And as the king, he's forming colonies and we are one of those colonies. This is an amazing thing. Can we stand together as we go? I I would encourage you that if any of this resonates with you and you want prayer, we have a prayer corner in the back. Uh, We'd love, love, love to pray with you. Uh, Secondly, if you're here and you're new to faith or you've been here for 45 years, either way, if you've never been baptized, April 3rd is going to be an amazing time to be baptized. Put it in your calendar. Call your friends and family. uh, Set aside any excuse for not being baptized. And so with that being said, May the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May he turn his face towards you and be gracious to you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You guys have a great afternoon.